reading and preaching from Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. Hear now the very word of God. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain from fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this continual narrative of your great and mighty works. Help us to understand, help us to respond, help us to be not only influenced, but to be um, increased in our faith, in our all, in our submission to the Most High God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It is always a challenge to go into a passage that has um, challenging components to try to find ways to, to understand it ourselves, but to also to know how to try to rightly present it before you. And today I, I, I intend or expect more so that it might um, come across a little bit more luxury than a sermon. And, and I ask your forgiveness and grace in that. I, um, it is, has been a, a very challenging week for me and my family. But at the same time, this particular passage um, seems very timely and helpful for, for us and for me and um, and I, I've tried really careful that even though the passage is challenging, not to impose upon it my own experience, but to just pull out of what it's actually there. And so um, maybe you might think that I have by the time that the morning is done. And again, I would ask your grace and forgiveness in it. But I do find that this passage is tremendously encouraging. And, um, and I pray that you will also be encouraged by it also. As we see throughout the book of Acts, there are often parallel themes that are going on. You've got to remember that it is Luke that is writing Acts, and he also wrote the book of Luke. Ah, Good. 
he did the gospel. So he knows the gospel. He knows the gospel account. And he has, he's a writer. He's going to carry certain themes. And he's going to see those themes. And he will present it in that way by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And you see that in the book of Acts, we must remember that there is this, a continuing of the work of Jesus Christ. But also there are these pointing back to the events of the gospel. We see that multiple times, and if you've had the opportunity to go through Acts with us up to this point, and we're over halfway through, you'll continue to see these repetitions and this, the shadowing of what Jesus has done, and then the continuing, seeing that the work that Jesus accomplished in the Gospels, on the cross, in his reign, is now being manifested through the promises from the Old into the New Covenants, and being replicated over and over again, and it is to be that way for us so that we are encouraged that the very work and the very power of the name of Jesus Christ is very present in the work of the church today. And so these are extraordinary foundations for us, but they are practically and continual feeding for us, helping us, strengthening of us, encouragements for us, as we serve in the kingdom today. This particular account of Paul and the others meeting with this slave girl who is possessed by a demon is a parallel story of an account where Jesus also encountered one who was possessed by a demon. Can anybody remember any components of that particular parallel story in the gospel? based upon some of the themes that you may see in this portion of the scriptures and acts. The crazy man. The crazy man. <laughs> that, there was, he was definitely crazy. It's kind of a, 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 going to be an automatic if you think about one who is possessed by a demon. What did Jesus do with this particular demon? Put it, in, like, it was more than that, actually. And it was more than just one demon. It was a multitude of demons. Does anybody remember the name of Legion? Legion. And why was this? Because there were many of us. And does anybody know the accurate number of the pigs that were reported? I thought I heard 2,000. So we'll we'll go with the middle there between between the two. Um, And also there's another account where there's actually a multitude of men. There was Matthew seems to indicate there were two men possessed. And so you see different parallels. All the essence of all what the Gospels are putting out are, are consistent. And there's one thing that's fairly consistent, which is what the demons called Jesus. What was it that they called Jesus? If you go back and look at Luke's account of this particular situation, it is a perfect parallel of what the demons... Just guess. Look at your current text if you want to... What? Close, the, the son of the, of the most high God. It is this most high God that is replicated both in Matthew. It does just say son of God. In Luke, it says the son of the most high God. And here, this girl with the demon in her says most high God. It says these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation Does anybody remember where Jesus was in the gospel account? Well, he was in a place called Gerasenes. 
And it was a place separate from where he was earlier. He was preaching amongst the Jews. He got into a boat and they had some fun times on the boat with some pretty dramatic things going on. And then he lands in a place called Gerasenes and it's a, a little island coastal area and it's a Gentile area. And it's an interesting flow in that particular narrative showing that Jesus's ministry is not just for the Jews, but it is going to be for the Gentiles. And we didn't know then, but this is also a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the ministry of the gospel as it spreads out. And so Jesus is giving a, an unknown hint to us, even though we know throughout the, all of the Old Covenant that this would be so, he's beginning to participate in that. And so he goes to a place and he's immediately just like Paul and Silas and Luke and other disciples were met by one possessed by a demon with a very similar introduction. Now, I want to think about this particular story in Luke because we need to see the parallel because seeing the parallel story helps us to understand maybe a little bit more about what's going on but because it's very peculiar. The two peculiar things in the Acts narrative is one of the fact that a demon is actually speaking truth in saying something that is very accurate. He is the most, these are the servants of the Most High God and they are there to proclaim the way of salvation. And you would think, why would that be troubling to Paul and the disciples? It's telling the truth. And then we have this interesting English translation of the Greek of that Paul was greatly annoyed. And there's a lot of debate about what that actually meant. Now, have, you all, have any of you all been ever greatly annoyed? <laughs> now, I, I'm not going to go around the room and, and ask what actually greatly annoyed you because you might be pointing to other people in the room. And I don't want to create a, a time of division but I am going to venture to say that maybe, just maybe, that your understanding of what greatly annoyed in that whatever moment that was, and maybe you thought of a lot of moments, or maybe it's just a part of your personality, that you're constantly greatly annoyed, that it's not necessarily parallel to what's going on here, but not totally removed. And so I think we have to go back and look at what's going on with Jesus in the gospel account and try to... Use that as a template of understanding of what's going on here in this particular Acts passage. Now, taking a moment to really chew on that gospel part, the gospel narrative part, of when Jesus encountered one, think about what's going on. And you can go back and read, and if you look in the sermon notes on the order of worship, I've referenced the particular passage in Luke that this account is shown. But the man or men that came up and met Jesus, these were scary men, or scary demons, because they tried to tie up this man. Children, I want you all to understand this particularly, because it's really a fascinating thing that this demon-possessed man, they used chains to bind him, and it says that he would twist them and break them apart, and they could not keep him contained. And do you all know where he slept and where he stayed? Caves, but caves that had a particular purpose. What was the particular purpose of those caves? What? They were tombs. They were placed where dead bodies were. Now, that's how many people like to sleep in tombs with dead bodies? <laughs> no, it's a scary scenario. I mean, this is a, a super scary scenario of seeing this man who is possessed by a demon who is amongst dead bodies, dead people, and who is super strong. 
And when Jesus lands on Gerasenes, what does he do? It says that he saw him from he saw Jesus from afar off, and he started running to Jesus. Now, imagine getting off the boat and maybe having a little bit of an understanding. Maybe they were on the boat and they're saying, oh yeah, this is Gerasenes. We've heard that there is this man or men that are possessed by demons that are, lives in the tombs and hasn't lived in a house in many years and can pretty much break your neck like he breaks the chains. And you get off the boat and he is running straight at you. All right? Sounds like a pretty scary scenario to me. So he comes running a frightful and fierce demon-possessed man. Scariest thing you could probably imagine. I don't know if any of you all have ever experienced anything physically to that degree of fear. Maybe. And if you did, talk to me afterwards. I'm sure it's an amazing story. But as that man possessed by a demon comes to Jesus, what does he do? He falls. I'm sorry. What does he do? Well, the demon comes and he falls on his face before Jesus. And he says, what would you have to do with us, son of the most high God? He is in complete submission. He is, now he's still a demon-possessed man. But think about the significance of that. This frightful, scary, dark circumstance is completely in body and in proclamation, in submission to what does he say? The most high. The Most High God. He recognizes there is no other God that surpasses the Most High God. Now, it doesn't mean that he is freed at that moment. It doesn't mean he's a Christian and that he was you know, ordained in ministry at that moment in the proclamation of that truth. He is a demon-possessed man, demons-possessed man, proclaiming the truth. And then by the word of Jesus' mouth, he frees this man. And ironically, they are begging. They know that they have doom. They are already recognized they have lost. They have encountered the Most High God. They know that their time is short. And they're like, well, please, at least do not send us on to the abyss. Do not go ahead and send us to the place of judgment. Give us somewhere else that we may go. And he grants them. I don't know if he smiled or winked when he did it and he throws him into the pigs and the pigs go running off the cliff and die and their doom is still certain he had more ministry to do he wasn't just going to release the demon and end the story he had more people that needed to see the power and the glory of the most high god and to also give us a story of what happens when Jesus comes and shakes things up. This is 
a scary and frightening story, but it is tremendously encouraging when we think about the reality of what's going on. Something that we might see to be the scariest thing that we've ever encountered in our life is in complete submission to the Most High God. And what they actually say is so significant that they recognize that He is the Most High God. The first time that the term Most High God is used is in Genesis. And in Genesis, it is the account of Melchizedek. And he was the priest of the Most High God. (laughs) And he blesses Abram. And he says to him, and I'm going to read the account. If you have your Bibles, you can flip there quickly, or you can read it later on. Genesis chapter 14, in verse 18, it says, And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was, a, he was priest of the God Most High. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him tenth of everything. Melchizedek is an interesting character. We don't really know who he is. He's very unique in the sense that he doesn't have a beginning or end. We see in Hebrews, it's kind of like, where did this guy come from? And we see in Hebrews, it is teaching us that he wasn't of the line of men. There was something unique here. Some even say that it's a pre-incarnate Christ. Some say he's at least a type of Christ or pointing to Christ. It's pointing to the Most High God that this is something rooted beyond what is done by the hands of man. It, then he, when he says Most High God, that the word there in the Hebrew at that particular time is El, Elevon. Elion. Elion means most. High. L is God. It's not unusual to use the words, or maybe vice versa, but it means the most high God. I mean, I've gotten them backwards, but it's not unusual for the word to be used by itself to indicate a deity or God. But to combine those together of saying the most high God, that yeah, sure, there are all kinds of gods out there. There are all kinds of things that you might worship. There are all kinds of powers and scary things and influential things But this is the most high God, the God most high. It's trumping over all things. It's showing that this God is the one who owns it all, both heaven and earth, and has delivered all of his enemies before his people for his purposes. That is what it is said by Melchizedek. And this is the same God and the demons who know power. They know different principalities. They know different gods and things that people worship in wicked pagan rituals. They know that people have lots of gods out there, but they know that this one is the one who is victorious over it. So they rightly say, Vial Ipsensos, which is God most high in Greek. This is so encouraging for us. We see that one, that Jesus was already going to the Gentiles, going beyond and spreading out, doing the Great Commission work automatically, and that here is Paul and Silas and Luke and others doing that same work. They are now in Europe. They are now preaching the gospel to other Gentiles and also God-fearing Gentiles that are already there, and they're 
preaching the gospel, and they're going to have the same kind of encounter with a very frightening situation. It may not seem very frightening to have this slave girl, the one who is captive, but it was a dark scenario. This slave girl had a power inside of her that was a dark and demonic force. And it was being used. She was being used by the powers of darkness of this age and the people who were also captive to that. And they were using it for a profit of destruction and death and confusion. This wasn't a lightweight scenario. It was a very frightening scenario that Paul was very keen in understanding that this ministry to the Gentiles is going to have a component that is very much like that same scenario shown in the gospel. And it was now his calling and their calling as disciples to go about facing that same kind of scary darkness. But also we have the same reminder that by the proclamation of even the demon that is inside of this slave girl, she recognizes that they are the servants of the same Most High God. Jesus is the son of the Most High God, and these are servants. They are parallel. They are containing in their words and proclamation of the gospel the same power to release demons from those who are captive. So Paul, going about his work with prayer, going about his work with ministry, going about his work of proclaiming the gospel, is going day by day with this slave girl, with this one who continues to have this spirit of darkness inside of her, this demon inside of her, and he is being greatly distressed. When you look at what the Greek word means, it's not sounding totally like what we would normally understand. The the word is diaponeo. I'm not trying to, I'm just trying to give you the Greek because when you go to the Greek and you look at the definitions, I'm butchering all of these words, I'm sure. But the best way to describe it in a broader sense is to work out laboriously to make complete by labor, it's exertion of oneself, striving, a distress. It's a combining the words of being grieved with a laborious activity. It's not just one who might be sitting still being grieved or mournful, but it is working with grief. It's striving like childbirth. It's managing with pains. It's accomplishing a labor, but with being troubled and displeased and offended and pained and to have yourself worked up. So it's not the same kind of thing of just, I think, a surface kind of annoyance when someone's maybe chewing with their mouth open or smelling funny or being just irritating I don't think that Paul was fully removed from that. I'm not saying that he's not human and that he's not weak, but I don't think that we've had the same kind of scenarios to understand that he is there in ministry and this particular circumstance of seeing this one. You can't think that he's just all of a sudden he's disconnected from the very call of the gospel. Maybe he had moments like that, and it's likely that he did, but this is a parallel story, and he is carrying tremendous amount of stress and grief, seeing the dark 
power still being very much actively involved, not only in this girl's life, but understanding the ramifications of what is to come. Because what happened with the gospel account, Jesus puts the demons into the pigs. The pigs run off the cliff and they die. And what happens to the city? Does anybody remember? What's that? They're filled with fear. They did not respond with, thank you. This guy has been so captive and he is free. We are so grateful. They saw a contrast of what they were living in because they too were captive to many ways is the same way as this man who was captive by many demons. Their fear was potentially, commentators differ, that maybe it was a loss of what their life would be like. I mean, you lose 2,000 or more pigs, one or 5,000, and those are your farm animals. I mean, that's a lot of pigs, Jonathan. I mean, I mean how, many, how long would it take you to butcher that many pigs? <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty significant amount of profit. Their life was going to be disturbed, just like it happened to these. And it does tell us in this particular account that they saw that their hope was gone. There was going to be a conflict with the status quo. There was going to be a problem here. And so we see that in the, both of these stories that There is powerful rulers, there's powerful darkness at hand. And it encounters with the gospel of Christ. It encounters with Jesus Christ himself being manifested through the Holy Spirit inside of his people. But then we see the power of the gospel. They didn't even go very fast into, have to go very long into this, I'm sorry. They didn't have to elaborate much in both of these particular accounts. They've already acknowledged the source and who this person is by saying most high God. They're automatically acknowledging that they are under that power. They cannot be over that power. They're not greater than that particular power. But then the power of the words of Christ sets free into life. Those who were captive slaves unto death are now free unto life for Jesus Christ. This reminds us of a similar passage we had in our reading today in John chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say that you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free... You will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak what I have seen of my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Here we have the contrast of powers, and even those who have the most strength of the power of darkness, recognizes that they've met their match. And by the power of the word of God, they have to be separated from their work. 
separated from any kind of success that is only ultimately being used for the purposes of displaying the glory and the power of God. What we should learn from this particular work that is going on here, that the work that Paul and Silas and Luke and the others have is the work of liberty for those who are captive by the darkness of sin. This is in context with context of what happened in the gospel. It leads me to believe that the, the, the grief that Paul was dealing with, you got to remember he turns and he says, I command in the name of Jesus Christ to think that he was doing that just out of just regular irritation like you or me is saying that he is using the name of the Lord in vain and a purpose for his own selfish relief. If he had any kind of irritation or annoyance that is similar to ours, it would have been a holy annoyance. There's not a lot of other passages that use that particular Greek word. In Acts, I think, chapter 4, it uses that when it's talking about the Pharisees being greatly annoyed at the preaching of the gospel. So you could think, well, maybe he was being just like them. And I'm like, I don't think so in the context. I think we see here that their work was the work of releasing captives from sin and death. So we should learn that our ministry goal, and it would help keep us in check when we are in ministry, is to be those who are proclaiming a message of freedom, a message of life. And that when we encounter certain demons and darkness and difficulties, we should be looking for ways that God is going to show forth his power of that, over that captivity. We should also be looking out for ways that it's going to rip away from us ways that we are still captive to the dark thinking, to the earthly comforts, to the worldly gods that are nothing in match to the God of Most High. We see that we must be postured and serve for the purposes of liberty in Christ so that we may be able to be used for the release of the bondage of Satan from Satan. And we should expect to serve with pained labor, striving, suffering, maybe a holy, even holy annoyance, suffering in mind and heart over the lost. Who does this remind you of when we go back to the gospel of how Jesus suffered in the garden on the behalf of the work that he had. He knew that his comforts were going to be ripped away when his body was on the cross. He even says, this is not my will, but thine to the Father, indicating to us at least some connection that this is not a preferential thing for a human to desire to suffer the wrath of the Father. So we see here all of these images of what it is to be in the ministry of the gospel and the reaction from the world when the gospel is presented. Do we expect that they're going to be cheery and happy to see us? Jennifer was telling me about a story by a woman named Patricia St. John and her autobiography and how she went from one different place in Africa. And one place are like looking forward to having people plant churches. And so you see that and you think that sometimes when you get involved in ministry, you're thinking, oh, people are going to want to love this stuff. <laughs> this is good stuff. I love this stuff. Surely everybody's going to love this stuff. And then she would go to another village or another region of the place and they're like, 
get out. You would think that the Jerians would have seen that and seen what Jesus did and said, wow, this guy is, he is the most high. What did they tell him to do? Get out from here. Leave. And very similar to the passage that Jonathan read, he left and went somewhere else. The only one there was the one who was released who said, take me with you, Jesus. Take me with you where you go. And he said, go home and tell everybody what you've seen. I would have been like, no, 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 I've been getting on that boat. Like, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back to that because there's still demons out there. But then here in this passage, we see that that same power that Jesus is with them, that he didn't leave his disciples who go out and face these demons. They are not alone in this work. We are left feeling empathy with the one freed there, but now seeing that we don't even really know anything else about this girl, but we know that Jesus is with them. They, the demons, recognize that Jesus is with them. He is with his church. He is with his servants. And they will bow. They they, they will cause havoc and they will cause difficulty and it will cause distress, but they are already captive and under the power of Jesus Christ. They cannot do anything on their own. And the world around them are very much like them. They can be disturbed and angry and sinfully annoyed like the Pharisees in chapter 4. And they can point back to their laws and their customs their morals and their virtues. I mean, can we see this today where whenever we try to present the gospel, we're now being told that those who are captive, if we try to release them from their captivity, that it's now against the law to do that, that we're doing reverse therapies or we're doing some kind of heinous thing when we preach the gospel or if we try to protect people who are being harmed by the powerful that we have to have our hands tied. They have their own morals. And you see it both on the right and on the left. The right have their own laws and virtues of how they communicate. And they will use the name of Jesus wrongly, like the Pharisees did, to really inflict their own selfish pride and boasting, just like the Pharisees, and crush people and keep them in captivity. And then we see the left who will celebrate the captivity, celebrate the demonic activity, And then somewhere in the middle, you've got these wishy-washy people who are virtue signalers about everything that got to be better than the right and the left. And then they're also doing the same thing, typically attacking the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ and authority and the structures that God has created. They can't stand to encounter Jesus Christ. But they're stuck showing a display of their own foolishness and their own weakness before the power of God. They have a lust for selfish gain. They're going to use other people, captive people, to promote their own ideologies across the board. And that's in the church too. It's across the board. Using people who are suffering under sin and darkness and lostness for their own purposes. 
The reaction of these people are very much the same that we encounter today. They will not celebrate liberty because they are also enslaved. They will not celebrate the Most High God and worship Him in honor and love because their father is of the devil. We are to continue, like in our reading in Galatians, to be patient as we proclaim the gospel to these people. To be on guard. Do not use this passage. I declare to you, do not use this passage. And think, oh, I don't really agree with Charles. I think he was just annoyed. And then feel like it's okay to have this sinful annoyance. Be careful that you won't quickly fall into chapter 4 and be a Pharisee. Even if Paul was in some way walking the line, and I am wrong there, it's wrong to be sinfully annoyed, regardless. Selfishly annoyed. Be grieved, though, that people are lost. Be grieved that they're still captive. And when they are free, be those who celebrate. And be glad to lose it all. Take all of my pigs and bacon. Destroy it all. (laughs) I mean, that's hard, giving up bacon. If somebody says, you know what? If you could just simply give up bacon. They're like, yeah, let's give up bacon so people can come to the Lord. We don't have to, thankfully. It's the opposite, gratefully. But what if he said, you've got to lose everything you've been working for? Things that seem parallel to the promises of what God has indicated for families and the fruitfulness of labor. He tells you to work hard. And maybe you work hard and you save up your money and then all of a sudden you get cancer and you don't have insurance and it's all gone. Or people die, or people that you love struggle or fall into sin, or whatever may happen in everything that you were comfortable and enjoying in the riches of what God has even taught you to enjoy. Get ripped apart. And everything changes. But if you see in the midst of that, you see one as being freed from the captivities of the demons, let it all go. Let it all go. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 10, the persecution will come. Behold, I'm sending you. I didn't even think about the parallel passage here. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents, innocent of doves. Beware of men. They will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for you are to say, well, for what you will say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. The Spirit of the Most High God speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. How many of you want to be hated by everyone? But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, fleeing to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will have not gone through all of the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for his disciple, for the disciple to be like his teacher, 
and the servant like his master, if they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? This is a parallel of that. They take Paul and Silas and they drag them before the governors and the magistrates and the people and they bring them before the people and say, this, these people are disrupting our way of doing things. They are advocating customs that are not lawful for us. We have our laws. We have our moral virtues. And they are going right into the face of it. And it is causing all kinds of havoc. It is showing us to be wrong. And they tore off the garments from them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And they inflicted many blows upon them and threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And it wasn't a nice safely, it was like keeping them secure, meaning keep them together. And it says, and having received this order, he put them in the inner prison, going down into the depths like Sheol, fastening their feet to the stocks, making sure that they would have no hope of being released to continue to call this, cause this disturbance. Decided to leave it here in this particular end of this passage, which might seem like a really bad place to end. But what is it, again, shadowing? It's shadowing the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and how he was beat and how he was stripped naked. And how his feet were not just put in stocks, but his feet were nailed to a cross. It's to point you back to the cross. We know what's going to happen in the next section. They will be freed just like Jesus will be raised from the dead. I wanted to leave it here because we wanted to leave it in the cross to remember that Jesus took on the ultimate sorrow of his striving. He wasn't just greatly annoyed. He was in peril the Greek word of what he was, the sorrow that he had in his heart and in his mind as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane is perilipus, peril. He went further in his grief than what Paul did. He did not just get himself in jail, he went into the tomb. But he left the country of the Gerasenes just like he ascended to the hand of the Most High. He rose from the grave. He rose away from the things of death, being victorious over it. And we are to be like those newly released disciples. We should be like, Jesus, take us home. I don't want to face any more of these demons. But this story is for you when he says, no, Go back home. Go back and tell everyone what I've done. Tell them of my power. And remember this story. Remember when you see those demons. Running at you. With fierceness and death all over them that they can only stop and fall before the feet of Christ even in their death and say, we are lower than the Most High God. They can't get past that. When Jesus is with his people by the Holy Spirit, 
they're not going to be able to go beyond that. They can scare us to death. They can bring fright into us. And they can have us captive to things and have people around us to captive to things for a season of wrong thinking and sinful stumbling. But they are under the Most High God. They cannot trump over Him. There is no power over them. And it is good for us, just like Paul. And then you begin to understand when Paul says, that he delights in his suffering. We think, that's crazy talk. He's lost his mind. Because every time he sees his suffering, he sees that he is with Christ. He remembers that the ministry is parallel to the ministry that Jesus had that actually does accomplish over all the power of darkness. Let us pray.